Hello, it's Monday, January the 17th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Do you have a problem getting to sleep and staying asleep? If so, stay tuned, because I'm going to be speaking to one of Britain's leading sleep disorder experts. Also, if you're a student and your university is going to try to require you to have online tuition, the Secretary of State for Education says kick up about it. The BBC licence fee, it appears it's on the way out. I'm going to be speaking to one Tory MP who thinks not before time. But first, Prince Harry's threatening to go to court. He would, wouldn't he? Because he's demanding protection for his family from Scotland Yard when he comes to Britain and he says he's willing to pay for it himself. So Prince Harry, who was stripped of his UK police protection team when he stepped down as a royal two years ago and moved to California, is now threatening to go to the High Court if his family is not provided with security when they're in Britain. He's claiming it's too dangerous to visit the UK without Scotland Yard protection and is even offering to pay for the service himself. Uh, the Home Office has said that's not going to happen. On the line to discuss this is Di Davis, who's a former chief superintendent with the Metropolitan Police, and he was, of course, a royal protection officer. Uh, Di, if he's offering to pay for it himself, why can't the uh, Home Office um, let him do that? Well, one would be creating a precedent, which in my 53 years of being involved in policing and security, I've never heard of. And with my research into 300 years of royalty protection from George III up till now, it has never happened other than Edward VIII, who was given uh, protection by Scotland Yard, but only to keep an eye on him and spy on him, frankly, um, because of his pro-Nazi leaning. And he was the one who abdicated, of course, and as you say, he got very close to the Nazi regime. Is there also a, a view here, Di, that um, you can't pick a mix? Um, he's no longer a working royal, uh, uh, and... If he wants to come over, who's to say there would be uh, royal protection officers or police who are trained in that line of duty available to help him anyway? Well, yes, but the, the, the issue is, look, he decided that he didn't want to be any part of the royal family. He, he made some dreadful remarks in that interview, and his behaviour since uh, has been, in my opinion, disgraceful, along with his good wife. If they want to be royals and they want to carry on doing royal business, then yes, if there is a risk. But you know, uh, over the years, Royalty Protection and the Home Office and others have got reasonably good at, at making sure that the risk assessment uh, is carried out thoroughly in conjunction with the other security agents and the Fixated Threat Assessment Centre. In my day, we didn't have that centre. We do now, where police officers, psychologists and mental health workers all work together to screen out those who historically have posed the greatest threat to royals. And there is not one royal that in one shape or another hasn't been threatened. But what you do, you apply where possible a, a, a scrutiny and you apply the appropriate resources to uh, the particular individual, particularly if there is a threat. As there has been with Prince Charles, there was with Princess Diana, there's nothing new in this. And there's nothing new in the police and the security system carrying out a proper survey. He knows that in one sense, but he has such an ego, or rather, in my opinion, they both have such egos, they expect the treatment. I've worked in California. I did an investigation for the Sunday Times there years ago. Um, it's dangerous. It is hugely dangerous in parts of L.A. 
So with great respect, you know, concentrate on where you're living now, worry about where you're living now, and frankly, historically, attacks on the royals in this country are remarkably low. It's not to say it doesn't happen. It's not to say there are some lunatics. They, they all are, are, are around, but it's not just Harry. And so for him to suddenly pick up the reins and say, I want it because I was chased by a, a photographer is nonsensical in my mind. And also, I guess, Di, if he does come over here uh, and he's attending an event with other members of the royal family, which is, I imagine, what might happen, and he's got his own protection officers who he's brought over from the United States, there'll be plenty of armed protection officers there for other members of the royal family. They're not going to turn a blind eye if somebody had lunges at Prince Harry, are they? No, of course they're not. And again, if he stays in any royal palaces, they are protected 24-7 by armed officers. Um, and of course, you will know uh, many of the, in brackets, so-called senior, and I hate that word, the more experienced royals are, are fast losing, it's said, and I don't know this for a fact, that they're losing their protection. Now, Uncle Andy is going to lose that protection, I think, if he hasn't done so already. Once you become a plain mister, like the rest of us, unless there is a serious risk, Scotland Yard and no police force will take action. If there is a any evidence of a risk, then the police would be duty-bound to provide him, his, his wife, and their children protection. At the moment, it is considered, rightly or wrongly, uh, that there isn't such a risk. And so, they're not going to take officers away from other royals or other duties to protect him when he decides he wants to be a royal again. Yeah, um, fascinating, isn't it? Um, uh, and as you say, Prince Andrew <clears throat> may well lose his protection. Can I ask you just finally, uh, Di, if Prince Harry was here and he had round-the-clock police protection, of course that would apply to his wife as well, what would that be costing, roughly, do you think? Uh, the truth is, I don't know. I can make a calculated risk, but we, we normally don't ever talk about what it costs. But in, in truth, it, it costs a lot of money. And somebody asked me on television this morning, uh, why can't you just find two officers to do it? Well, that shows with great respect to the interviewer the naivety of the question. It is a complex scenario. You just don't have two. You advance, you prepare, you do intelligence, you meet with other agencies. So to ask the question naively that they, oh, well, you just put two officers is a nonsense. It doesn't work like that. Every visit, every movement, is calculated and that's why royalty protection has the reputation it has worldwide they are fantastic men and women who put their lives often if necessary at risk i have such respect for them that's the uh, former chief superintendent and former head of the royal protection squad di davis Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with all our other podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So last week, with almost prescient timing, the Conservative MP Peter Bone submitted a bill to scrap the BBC licence fee and require the corporation to be funded by a subscription instead. Then on Sunday, in the mail on Sunday, hey presto, Culture Secretary Nadine Doris signalled the BBC licence fee could be scrapped after 2027. It's going to be frozen for the next two years at £159. She said... Also, the days of the elderly being threatened with prison sentences and bailiffs knocking on doors are over. I'm joined by that man, Peter Bone, who is, of course, the Conservative MP for Wellingborough. Um, Peter, everything the Secretary of State said must have been music to your ears. Yeah, it was. And uh, Nadine is straight talking and uh, you don't have messing around. She, she said it as it, as it is. 
Uh, the only difference between me and the government was if my bill had gone through, um, or if my bill does go through, it will be the licence fee would go in May uh, 23, uh, whereas the government's saying it's going to go in December 25. Really, that's, uh, that's, that's fantastic. And of course, if the government wants to take over my private member's bill, I'm quite happy to change the dates in the bill. So it's really positive. And uh, I, normally when you do a private member's bill, it gets a little bit of publicity and you get some people supporting it. When I published my bill last week um, and asked the PM, the Prime Minister, a question about it, I got tens of thousands of people liking it on Twitter, inundated with emails in support. In fact, far more emails about um, the licence fee and supporting the licence fee than I did about Boris. Uh, so we've really, really touched on the raw nerve of the British people. They don't want to be taxed or if you like a license fee for something that they don't want what do you say to those people oh this is all designed to distract the public from partygate although bearing in mind this was always the week in which the bbc had been told by nadine doris department they would be told their financial settlement that was in setting concrete months ago but is this all about the red operation red meat distract attention from the travails of the prime minister I, I, that's wishful thinking from the Prime Minister's opponents, I think. Uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, as you say, it was always going to be announced this week. And the other thing is, we, we're only just now coming out of COVID. And what I need the government to do now, now he's dealt with this terrible pandemic, is to do the conservative measures that we would have done right at the beginning of the administration. We hadn't been affected by COVID. So, for instance, the licence fee is one. Uh, dealing with a small boat coming across the channel and getting taxation down. So, actually, those are the things that come up on the doorstep when I'm talking to people. Um, so, if we can get a conservative agenda going, it looks as though the Prime Minister wants to do that. We've got an 80-seat majority. Let's get on and do it. What about bias at the BBC, Peter Bone? If they were able, and I think it would be difficult, to curtail their left-wing bias, which past director-generals have admitted is pretty endemic, would you be more supportive of the licence fee? Well, we're not trying, obviously, to abolish the BBC. We're trying to get rid of having to pay for something that you don't want. So, if the, I mean, I won't be subscribing to the BBC because of its bias. I mean, when we had Brexit, I think the... It was one out of every six speakers on the BBC um, was for leave. The other five, uh, five were for remain. Question time. It was completely always dominated by remainers. And uh, look, I ran the second largest leave campaign in the country with Tom Perslove and Helen Harrison. Not once, not once were we invited to put some balance in the programme by going on question time. And by the way, in the run up to Friday with my private members bill, the BBC refused to cover it. No interviews, no uh, nothing on their website. Other news outlets, other television companies covered it. That That's the trouble with a state broadcaster. When it's something that doesn't fit their agenda, they just don't put it on. When I spoke to Nadine Doris at the Tory party conference, I said, will the licence fee be around in 10 years' time, 20 years' time? She looked at me and said, who knows if the BBC will be around in 20 years' time in its current form because Netflix... Uh, Amazon, Apple, all these new ways of watching TV, all the streaming outlets have changed the broadcast um, landscape forever. Do you think she's right? Well, she certainly has a point. Um, of the BAFTA nominees this year for Best Documentary, there are 15 nominees. Only one of those programmes was made by the BBC. So it shows that quality broadcasting is being made 
away from the BBC at the moment. And, you know, everyone said, well, you need the BBC because of quality broadcasting. There are all these other organisations doing it. So I think I, I would not be surprised if the, the BBC, well, the BBC will change. And the fact the first step is to make sure that we're not forced to pay for it. All right, that's Peter Bone, who's the Conservative MP for Wellingborough, whose um, bill to scrap the TB, TB, BBC licence fee with prescient timing has now been embraced, it seems, by the government. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. So as students return to university, many are facing another term of Zoom lessons and remote learning. It's why the Education Secretary, Nadim Sahawi, says students who are paying £9,250 a year for their degree studies should challenge universities who fail to offer in-person lectures. Uh, joining me now is Nick Hillman, who is the Director of the Higher Education Policy Institute. The education sector is pretty clear. Students should challenge universities if they're still to be denied face-to-face teaching. Is he right? It's certainly the case that students want face-to-face teaching, but it's not always quite as simple as, therefore, they must have it. So, for example, some international students have struggled to get over to the UK, so they need online uh, teaching. Um, Some staff and some students are having to isolate so they need some online teaching. Um, but in general, in general, on, uh, face-to-face is, is, yes, much more popular than online only. Why is it you think some universities are resisting? Because we're looking here, more than 100 institutions, including many in the Russell Group, are planning to offer a mix of online and face-to-face teaching again this term. We, and we know that the Omicron variant is not just dying out. It's nothing like as um, dangerous as first thought. Well, it's for two reasons. The first is that they had to decide before the students came back for this term what they were going to do. And the latest position on Omicron was not as clear when they were making those decisions as it is now. That's the first thing. The second thing is that some of the online technologies that have been rolled out during the crisis are actually really good. I mean, if you speak, for example, to disabled students. They say their teaching and learning online is often better because they've got access to all sorts of uh, support and, and, and whizzy techie things that weren't there before. So, so universities are saying, look, it would be mad to go back to exactly what the world was like before the pandemic. And even when we bring back nearly all the face-to-face teaching, some of the educational tech stuff will stay in place. It will be blended rather than only face-to-face or only online. And that's quite a hard message for them to convey. I mean, the point the minister was making is students are paying 9,250-year fees, and if they're not even being offered face-to-face, that is not fair. Either they should have got to change what they're doing, the universities, or give them, a, give, them a, give them a discount or a refund. Well, I broadly agree with the minister, but with one caveat, which is a lot of the universities that are, that are doing the online stuff at the beginning of this term are saying it's just for a week or two, or maybe for the whole of January, then it will go back to what it was like last term. But look, I broadly agree with the minister. Every university has a complaints procedure. And if students have been promised things that have not happened, they should use those complaints procedures. And there is an independent body called the Office of the Independent Adjudicator that they can go to if the university's own complaints procedures have left them 
uh, still unhappy. Do you think um, uh, that the students that were taught online during the lockdown um, got as good an education as the one as they would have done if they were face to face with their lecturers? Well, broadly, probably not. Let's be uh, honest. Uh, And that goes for school kids as well who are learning online. Um, Some students say there have been some advantages. I mentioned disabled students before. Some some people say that access to library resources has got much better because they can read a uh, lot more uh, stuff online rather than having to go into the library and getting the, the picking up the journals physically. And a lot of that stuff has changed. Um, but look, broadly, it's absolutely clear that people prefer face-to-face. Some teaching and learning online, if it's good, is good. Um, but they miss out on the social life as well of being in a lecture hall with other, with other fellow students. And so, you know, the learning experience and the non-academic experience actually linked with one another. And, and it's some of the social side of university life that has disappeared as well when everything goes online. That's fine. That was going to be my final question. Um, if they are still being taught online, they are mi- missing that great buzz of being together as fellow students, fellow undergraduates. And, uh, and the whole point of being at university is part of that, isn't it? Yes, it is. And those students graduating this summer, 2022, have had every single one of their three years of university somehow disrupted. And that is very, very sad. It hasn't been as good as normal. The only thing I would say is if they hadn't enrolled in university and had been doing something else, that something else probably wouldn't have been as good as normal either. You know, the labour market's been in flux. Uh, uh, Colleges have been disrupted, just like universities have. They probably are pleased they didn't stay at home at their parents' house and got away, even if the experience hasn't been as good as they hoped. Very interesting. That's Nick Kilman, who's director of the Higher Education Policy Institute. Thanks for joining us. Want to get in touch? Tweet us at Mel Plus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. Now, it's that time in the podcast when I get my education in sport from that man, Matt Gatwood, who is the deputy sports editor. But I have learnt one thing, um, Matt. We're pretty damn useless at international cricket. England, well, we that is. England certainly are. They've, it's been an absolute horror tour of Australia, which has finally uh, came to an end over the, the Lord. over the weekend. Yeah, thank the Lord. I mean, the batsmen and uh, players clearly couldn't get home quick enough the way they batted on the final uh, on the final day. Well, what turned out to be the final day is actually only day three of the mm. Test match, but they couldn't drag it on any further. Um, it was a really uh, it was a really meek surrender, probably the worst of the tour. Right, uh, bowled out cheaply, having looked like I mean. It, they, they got to sort of 60 for none, which is the first time they'd had a decent opening partnership. Where they were chasing 270 yeah. to, to win the <clears> final <throat> test, which was always a pro- tall order. Got to 60 for none. And then you start to think, maybe, maybe it could happen. But obviously, uh, they soon disabused us of that idea and uh, collapsed in another heap. Um, uh, and were basically 120 all out. So it was a, a terrible end. But it's not so much the, the score, it's the dismissals, some of the ways that the guys managed to get themselves out. It looked like... Uh, they were all very much at the end of a long, tough mm. uh, tour. Now, obviously, there are some extenuating circumstances in terms of they've been jumping from bubble to bubble all the time. They've been mm. in Australia. Uh, it's not been a normal Ashes tour, but still. It's to um, get crushed 4-0 and they only just 
clam well, yeah, on exactly. in the test they drew uh, exactly. by the skin of their teeth. Exactly. And, you know, we've been we've been hammered in Australia a few times lately, but this feels like probably the worst. You know, we were never in any of the tests. No. We never had a sniff. We, no. As you say, we clung on to get a nervy draw in the only one we didn't lose. Uh, it was pretty embarrassing from start to finish. Some of the, the, the scores, you know, it's one century by an England batsman. Um, some, probably about two cricketers, English cricketers, came out of it with some credit, one of them being Mark Wood, the fast bowler, the rest of them, really. Mm. Uh, it was a massive step backwards. So now Joe Root has said he wants to carry on as That's captain. That's the captain, yeah. Yeah, now we thought, you know, his body language has been anything to go by. You'd think he almost would have had enough, but he, surprisingly to me, now that the decision may be taken out of his hands, there's now going to be meetings and papers written and reviews done on this whole tour and decisions will be made going forward about whether the coach, Chris Silverwood, keeps his job, whether Root stays on as captain, um... And uh, even whether Ashley Giles, the sort of England uh, cricket supremo, keeps his job. So uh, that's all to be determined over the uh, over the course of the next few weeks before they go to the Caribbean for another right. uh, test series. So we'll see whether Root keeps his job. He probably will because there's... Don't they need a rest? Well, they, yeah, they will have a little don't rest don't we need now. a rest? We all need a rest from English cricket. Yeah. There will be a little rest now. Well, there'll be a rest for the test team. Yeah. The, uh, the T20 lot are out in the oh. uh, West Indies starting this weekend. Right. So it's non-stop in terms of the international mm. cricketing calendar, as you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the test team now, they're going to have a little pause and see where they go from here. Whether that's route in charge remains to be seen. Okay, now a Premier League manager gets the sack. Rafa Benitez got the push from Everton, who might be hiring their old manager who they gave the sack to. There may be, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know his name, so that's about as far as I can okay, go well on that. Well, that's Roberto Martinez, Thank who's you. the current manager of Belgium, who they've already sacked once, you're right, um, a few years ago. So Rafa Benitez, obviously, was never going to work for one obvious reason, which was... Um, I don't know. Rafa Benitez used to manage... Liverpool. Exactly. So he was a huge success yep. at Liverpool, won the... Um, uh, Champions League with them so it was never really it was right. always you know uh, destined to end badly the, for Rafa the fans Everton. would have been very suspicious of well him. of course and they were never going to as soon as it started to go wrong they were not going to give him any time they were not going to cut him any no. slack all the Liverpool fans took great delight in the fact their old did. manager was their agent yeah. Rafa yeah. going into Everton yeah. to, uh, uh, to to sort of bring them down from within and all those sorts of jokes at Everton's expense so they were never going to cut him much slack uh, and as it came to pass they lost a, a horrific defeat to Norwich, who, the bottom uh, club. who were the bottom club uh, at the weekend. They lost um, 2-1 to Norwich and that spelt the end for Rafa, who was sacked yesterday. So now there's Roberto Martinez in the frame, but the other interesting name that's been cropping up is Wayne Rooney, <sighs> who is doing a great job with Derby County, who, although they've been docked a million points, mm. are still uh, fighting to avoid relegation uh, from the championship. So Rooney back to his old stomping ground uh, where is he that, started. Where, that's where he started that's where he went started to United, before he went right. to Manchester United and then yeah. he went back to Everton at the tail end of his career. Um, so that could be a, an amazing story if Rooney yeah. were to go back there. But we don't know at the moment right. quite what's uh, where. Did you know I was given a guided tour of Goodison Park, Everton's I, ground, a few I weeks didn't ago? I A few weeks ago? Yeah, I was what? up in, in Liverpool with Nadine Doris, the culture secretary. Yeah. I was interviewing and spending a day with her, and we got a guided tour of Everton. And what uh, did you think of the stadium? Amazing. Yeah, good. Very blue, but they're getting rid of it. They are moving, yeah. I think it's a real shame because the ground is yeah. a magnet and it provides a lot of local work. Yeah, well, and much then, like Anfield. Yeah, and you can see Anfield. You yeah. can, I couldn't believe you can see Anfield, yeah. the Liverpool yeah. ground, from virtually from Everton's front door. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, very um, interesting. Yeah, and I was shown around by um, uh, the highest ever domestic scorer, whose name I can't remember. He was in a centre forward. He's probably in his 60s now. Graham Sharp? Yes, it was. There you go. Very nice man. That's a good guess. He worked out very quickly. I didn't know my football <laughs> from my elbow. 
Really? I said, where do you hang the, where do you hang the rackets? He doesn't need to be massively perceptive to no. get that, does he? Very true. Now, apparently, your team Arsenal, of course, to stir. Yeah, off so, the pitch or uh, on the pitch? Off the pitch this right. time. So, yeah, interesting. So, at the weekend, uh, Arsenal were meant to be playing the North London derby yesterday at Tottenham. So, right. obviously, massive match. Why was it postponed? Well, Arsenal requested for it, for it to be postponed on um, Friday afternoon because of lack of players. Now, the reason it's caused... So, lack of players meaning... That there's a rule, the Premier League rule, that if your squad is decimated by COVID cases oh, yeah. and injuries and yeah. call-ups to the African Cup of Nations, but the COVID means that you don't have enough players to play a game... Yeah. You can apply right. for the fixture to be postponed. Now, Arsenal have only got one player with COVID, but because all their other players are either injured, suspended, or in Africa with the African Cup of Nations, they satisfied the criteria for the Premier League. Well, they shouldn't account take suspensions into account. I mean, they've been suspended because of bad behaviour on the pitch. And this is why it's caused a stir, because that, that is exactly the argument put forward by Tottenham fans who found out Saturday lunchtime oh. that they weren't going to be able to go to the game the following afternoon. Uh, and, you know, it's... Uh, uh, it's not gone down well uh, across, you know, lots of lots of people in football think this is ridiculous now that you're being able to get caught, games called off when only one player has COVID. Injuries are part and parcel of the mm. game. Suspensions, as you rightly point out, are your fault. And it's no yeah. surprise to Arsenal that they've got a few players who play, um, who will be going to play in the African Cup of Nations. So that's not a shock to them as well. So really, they managed to get a game called off because of one COVID case when you boil it down. But no, I'm not saying it's Arsenal's fault. Arsenal have taken advantage of the rules that the Premier League it's have the rules, put in isn't place. It? So the rules are the uh, are the problem here. But uh, yeah, Arsenal's decision has not gone down well with some Tottenham fans who are accused of some, of running scared. Yes, you can't be very proud of your favourite team. I'm always proud of them. All right then. Okay, that's Matt Cat. We're very proud of Arsenal, even though they've um, well caused a stir. So if you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at Mel Plus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So in the Daily Mail this week, one of Britain's leading sleep experts is offering fascinating tips on how to drop off in a series of articles and podcasts. Professor Guy Lestinat, who's with us now, believes we're on the brink of a global epidemic of sleep problems and he offers tips on everything from sleep aids to what might be preventing you from falling asleep. I'm fascinated by this, Professor, because sometimes it takes me forever to go off to sleep. And I know it's because my head is swimming with far too many things. So how do you help me? Well, I think you're, you're not alone in that we know that about 30% of the population will have insomnia at some point in any one year. And about one in 10 of the population, of the adult population, will have ongoing problems with chronic insomnia. So, so, so this is a very common experience. Now, some of insomnia is related to uh, physical factors. So we know that there are some physical conditions that increase the likelihood of insomnia or actually directly cause insomnia. But for the majority of individuals, it's a rather complicated set of circumstances. Some of which is related to our own behavior. Some of it is related to our psychology. Uh, and some of it is related to our environment. And, and so really there are a few things that we can all do that are common factors that are very, very frequently seen in, in the population. But it really is a case of looking at your life as a whole to try and understand what it, what it is that is causing your difficulties with sleep. And of course, I, I, I laughed out loud when I read your piece where you said it's not as simple as drinking chamomile tea or lighting a lavender candle. Because if when I'm going to bed some nights, I think, oh, I'll have a cup of chamomile tea, that'll help me sleep. 
And you know what? It doesn't. No, and and if you talk to people who, you know, there are some annoying people in the world who say, oh, no matter what I do, whatever else is happening, I'll always be able to sleep like a baby. But you have to remember that those individuals are not the people who are drinking vast amount of chamomile tea or or, or taking valerian extracts. Um, this is something intrinsic to to us. This ability to drift off to sleep, or in in some cases, the inability to drift off to sleep. So, um, <clears throat> for people listening who may not have read your words of wisdom in the paper, Professor, where do you start? What would be your um, five or six tips, perhaps, to help start people getting off to sleep a bit? eat more easily or helping those people who often wake up after three or four hours and can't get back to sleep? So we tend to group the behaviours that are conducive to sleep under the term sleep hygiene, which is a really horrible expression. But I think everybody, at least in the medical world, knows what that means. So these are sensible things that will help you um, to drift off to sleep and stay asleep. So some of these are incredibly simple. First of all, understanding the role that caffeine has in in your sleep. So um, many people don't appreciate that caffeine hangs around for a very long time. Uh, And if you drink enough of it, even if you drink enough first thing in the morning, there will still be some caffeine circulating in your system before you go to bed. Um, So so really to to moderate your caffeine intake, stop drinking at about lunchtime uh, and not beyond then. Uh, Alcohol, uh, tobacco, all these things are actually... Uh, not very good for your sleep. Uh, alcohol in particular is quite detrimental to our sleep, particularly um, if you have, for example, sleep apnea, which is uh, where your airway collapses down in the night and stops you stops you breathing properly at night. And so we tend to think of alcohol as being a, a, a good sedative, and in, indeed it is. But even if it actually manages to get you asleep, it will then disrupt your sleep once you're asleep and actually make it much more likely for your sleep to be a very poor quality indeed. Exercise, you know, um, exercising during the day, there is good evidence that aerobic exercise is quite good for consolidating sleep and making your sleep of of better quality and slightly deeper. Um, And uh, simple things like not having very large meals at night before you go to bed, because if you've got reflux, that's going to cause you you problems and plus it can cause massive fluctuations in your blood sugar overnight. So, So these are the sort of the sensible lifestyle things that you can do uh, to try and improve uh, the quality of your sleep. But that's not going to help everybody because if you've got significant problems with insomnia, then then quite frankly, although of course it's important to change your lifestyle and make sure you're not doing anything that's going to make your sleep worse, it's not a question of whether or not you stop drinking caffeine at midday or at 2pm. It's something a little bit more fundamental than that. And for, for people with long-term insomnia there are standardized treatments that are very effective treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or cbti and what does that mean in real terms cognitive behavioral therapy what does it mean you you go and talk to someone uh, is is it like a form of counseling yeah it's not uh, although when people hear cbt they think oh it's like a treatment for depression or anxiety essentially what this in in this context cbti and the i is important the i stands for insomnia is really a a behavioral and cognitive treatment so what i mean by that is it tries to fundamentally alter your behavior but it also alters the way in which you think about sleep with a view to essentially retraining your brain to associate bed with sleep rather than bed and staying awake 
So uh, I don't know, Andrew, if you're probably familiar with the concept of Pavlov's dogs. So these are, uh, Pavlov trained his dogs to associate the ringing of a bell with being fed. And so they would start salivating when the bell was rung. In some respects, we humans are no more glorified than Pavlov's dogs in that we, if we're good sleepers, we associate our head hitting the pillow with drifting off to sleep and staying asleep. But for people who have had many, many nights of lying in bed being awake, then it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because then your brain starts associating being in bed with struggling to get off to sleep or having difficulty staying asleep. And so what CBTI aims to do amongst many things is to essentially retrain the brain with that kind of positive association with bed rather than a negative one. And what of um, old chestnuts like um, if you can't get to sleep, do you toss and turn or do you get out of bed, wander, have a wander around the house perhaps? read something, watch some TV. I mean, what's your advice if someone, after an hour, an hour and a half, they're still not asleep, what, what should they do? So this goes back to what I was saying about associating bed with a place of sleep rather than a bed of uh, a place of wake. The, 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 general, the general advice, and this is indeed part of this program called CBTI, is if you're lying awake in bed for more than about 20 minutes at a time, then, then actually, if you continue to do that on a regular basis, your brain begins to associate bed with being awake rather than bed ah, and being asleep. Yes. And so, so the general advice is that if you've been awake for more than 20 minutes or so, then you should go into another room because, once again, it's about associating your bed and your bedroom with sleep. You know, try and keep the lighting levels low because we know that ambient lighting is important in terms of its impact on, on your sleep. And do something that is quietening from a from a mind perspective um things like reading or listening to music rather than watching the television because the television is quite an alerting experience but it's also exposing you to to light as well in the middle of the night which is perhaps not ideal for sleep final question mrs thatcher famously survived on four hours sleep a night well that's what she says anyway um is there is there an optimum number or level of how many hours sleep we should have? Well, Mrs. Thatcher died of dementia, ultimately. Now, of course, we can't, we can't prove that that is uh, directly related, but clearly there is a strong association between poor uh, sleep or limited sleep and cognitive decline. So, so um, I think that there are very, very few individuals who seem to carry rare genes who can get away with a very limited amount of sleep, but, but these are really the, the exception. And there is really good evidence from a variety of sources when we look at things like mortality, we look at um, various issues related to cognition, um, mood, anxiety, that actually most people should be getting somewhere in the region of between six and a half and eight and a half hours a night sleep. Very interesting. That's Professor Guy Leshner. He's clinical lead for Guy's Hospital Sleep Disorder Centre and he's writing fabulous spreads on sleep disorders and how to help you get to sleep in the mail this week. Thanks so much for joining us. So that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, you can download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pearce. This is The Andrew Pearce Show. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.